Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and here we are for another week. Uh, today we got Mr. Michael Hawley in uh, St. In the Buffalo. house. That's right. <laughs> Hi, Alan. In the house. He's in the house, and yeah, so there's no room for anybody now. Uh, um, well, Mr. Hawley, um, what's new? You made it back from L.A., and they never... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, never... history's greatest mysteries, and I'm in the second half of the season, so uh, they start this month. And the Jack the Ripper episode is probably going to be in April. Well, they're probably going to be canceled by then. Oh, that's, that's not good. <laughs> well, that'll be interesting. That'll be great. That'll yeah. be, uh, you know. And I don't even get to speak about my suspect that I researched. It's, they just wanted the general expert of that. So uh, it'll yeah. be fun. You know, so, you know, I, too bad I didn't get to meet uh, Lawrence Fishburne when, he, when I was there. <laughs> that would have been really neat. <laughs> Who we've got here is uh, Nick Quantrell. So thank you for being here, Nick. No, pleasure. Great to join you guys. Looking forward to it. Yes, absolutely. So so Nick here, now I've noticed you've got this, um, I guess this Joe Garotti book series um, yeah. that you're talking about here, and you're, you've got book four that just came out, or, or I guess it's probably been a year, right, or something, yeah, September 20. Um, yeah. So Nick Garotti. Who is Nick? Or Joe. Who is Joe Garotti? I was going to say, Joe yeah. Garotti's probably Nick, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You also don't write yourself, don't they, like that? So, no. no Joe's, uh, Joe Garrett is a, is a small-time private investigator, uh, and, and he kind of lives and works in my home city of Fulham, the United Kingdom, uh, which is this kind of like 
northern isolated city that's sort of post-industrial, you know, it's kind of being kicked and battered and trodden on by the government for decades and it's kind of coming back up again a little bit at the moment. But I kind of wanted to sort of use that classic US template of the private investigator and set it in the north of England to see if it would work. You know, I was kind of, I didn't want to write another cop. You know, you know, there's so many kind of great cop novels out there, isn't there, that I needed to kind of think of something different. And that's where Joe came from, this idea of having a private investigator who doesn't have a femme fatale walking into his office every five minutes. He doesn't have a bottle of whiskey in his drawer. He doesn't walk around the city full wearing a fedora because, you know, you probably get a bit of a slap for doing that. So, he's, um, you know, it's kind of a, it's a small time private investigator who kind of finds himself in an awful lot of trouble throughout these series of books. And um, as you say, Sound of the Sinners is the latest one, and that's the fourth. I'm calling it the fourth in my trilogy because I didn't expect to write it. So it's kind of, it was a bit of a bonus book, I think, for me. That's interesting. When you say you didn't mean to write it and it's the fourth in the trilogy, I always wonder because um, when you're doing a series with one main character like this, um, do you have this all outlined? Do you kind of know what's going to happen to to Joe over a period of several books and then you sort of write the books to fill that story? Or is it just by the seat of your pants? It's kind of by the seat of my pants, I think, because I, I wrote the three, the first three. It's kind of a, a, it's a trilogy. I did kind of know where I'd want to make the end of that book, and that was with him walking away from from, the, from his home of Hull. Um, and those books were published by uh, Cafe Nights, a, a small UK crime press. Uh, and when they closed the doors to crime and I got the rights back, Fahrenheit Press got in touch and wanted to republish them, which was great. But kind of the, the condition of the deal was that I wrote a, a new Joe Garrington novel to go with them. So... I'd kind of had this gap between book three and book four where I had to think about what Joe had been doing and where he'd been and what kind of, what, what would bring him back? What would make him come back home, back to Hull? You know, what, what would that be? And the kind of, it was kind of like a structure that I had to work with and play with if I didn't start writing it. Um, but essentially that kind of arc of Joe as a character is, it is kind of seat of the pants. I think, you know, it's kind of like peeling back an onion that I learned something new every time I write about him. You know, there's no kind of end game and such. It's just kind of, um, I'm kind of discovering it as I write in, in many ways, I think. Uh, you know, as we get into the character of Joe, um, yeah. how much of you is in that? Like, did, is investigation, is that something you've always wanted to do or something you have experience with? No, no, it's not. No, I mean, I think I've just always been a massive crime fiction fan. You know, as a reader, probably 90% of what I read is, is crime novels of, you know, of all stripes and colours. You know, it can be kind of hard boiled stuff through to psychological mysteries or you know, even a cosy mystery, you know, it's just, I just, I'm always fascinated by, I guess, by crime. Um, I studied uh, criminology and social policy when I was younger, and I think that was kind of where it came from, you know, that sense of trying to understand the world around you, and I think crime fiction allows you to kind of make sense of it in a way that other books don't necessarily do so. So, you know, for me, crime has always been a way of exploring the world as as a place, but also my home city as well, you know, I think that was probably the most important thing. It's kind of me having a conversation with myself about my home city. So, yeah, you know, Joe, Joe's kind of a tool for doing that, I think, more than anything. You know, it's not, he's not me. I'm not kind of, you know, I, I wish I kind of had his toughness, I guess, at some, in some respects, but he is just a tool for me to explore my city, I think. Yeah, and sometimes it's good to uh, put yourself in that outlet. I mean, that, I mean, Joe can be the character, like you said, and do things that you wished you could have done, but, or you can do, but you, you, you can't in regular life. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's just a way of exploring a place, isn't it, from a different perspective, I think. You know, like I wouldn't be able to go and knock on certain doors in the city. You know, he, he, you know Joe has a reason to do that and a drive to do that. And he kind of is 
is propelled by that need for justice for whoever he's kind of working on behalf of or for himself. So, yeah, you know, it's, it's a tool really to explore those feelings and those darker emotions, I think, without really, without leaving the safety of your own house, I suppose, when it comes down to it. But, um, yeah, you know, that, that's how I see Jura, really. It's kind of my tool for exploring a city that's kind of changing mm. around me constantly. So, so your city, so what is it about you that you want to explore it so much that it's a big part of the books? I, I would take it, this is my opinion, that in these books, the city itself, like especially Hall, right? That's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, that in itself is almost a character on its own. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think so. Because um, Hull's are kind of, even even in England, it's a strange city because we're relatively isolated from everywhere. You know, if, to get to the nearest next place, it's an hour away to kind of reach a, a comparable city or a bigger city. So it's kind of a very much an isolated and forgotten place. You know, and it's kind of very much downtrodden and looked down upon by the media and by and by people who've never been to it. Um, so it's always had this kind of sense of, you know, we abide by our own rules in Hull. You know, we do what we want. We you know, our artists produce what they want, they write what they want, they make music as they want to. They're not necessarily influenced by fads or by other places in the same way that maybe other cities are. So it's always felt like, almost kind of like a republic on the tip of the country. Um, and, you know, for me as a, as a writer, that's a gift because not many people kind of come to the city. So I can kind of put it down on the page and explore it and try and explain it to people. And, uh, you know, it's that sensitive that crime fiction allows us to travel, whether we're travelling to a you know to somewhere down the road that we maybe don't know, or we're traveling to to, to somewhere else in the world, whether it's America or whether it's Scandinavia or Africa, wherever it may be. I think that's what crime fiction does really well, is allows us to explore different places and different people and different ideas. So, you know, it felt like when I started to write, I was only able to write about my home city. You know, I, even now I struggle to write about places that aren't my home city. You know, I can kind of I can get on Google Maps and I can kind of visit places and I can kind of look at them and try and feel them, but it doesn't feel as it doesn't feel as kind of natural about writing as my home city is. What's your population in Nahal? It's about a quarter of a million. So it's kind of it's, it's a, I think it's about the fifteenth or sixteenth biggest city in, in England. It's not a huge city by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's big enough to have people who are kind of you know completely destitute, up to people with stacks of money and influence and power within a, on a regional basis. So you kind of get that whole that whole spread, you know, the whole kind of like geographical and um, and social spread that you need for a crime novel, I think. You know, that's kind of what makes it exciting for me. Okay. So better than or worse than Blackpool? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're on the other side of the, of the country to Blackpool, so it's not somewhere I get to go to very often because I'm only half an hour from uh, from, from seaside resorts where I am, places like Scarborough and Whitby, which, you know, Whitby, obviously, that's kind of the set of the Dracula, isn't it? So that's kind of, uh, that's, you know, it's a very popular sort of seaside place where Blackpool, in my my perception is it's quite a it's quite a rundown seaside town that kind of again like Hull needs investment and it's probably not had it for a long time but um, I do love that type of sort of uh, slightly seedy seaside feel you get in those places you know you kind of you get kind of criminals who are maybe maybe quite small time but they exert a lot of power in, in, in a small space and that's kind of interesting as well so I, well, I, I, like, I, like, I like places. Yeah, when, when when I was there last, we went to visit friends that had a place up in Blackpool, and I wanted to see what slappers were. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was that was just it, you know. That was it for me, and let's just say yeah. it. No, it was fine. I didn't really actually notice. I I actually didn't know why it had such a bad reputation. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I think it's it's 
it's the media, isn't it? You know, people get perceptions of places through the media, and um, you know, certainly in England, a lot of a lot of these things are kind of very London centric. So it's kind of people writing about places from the from the comfort of their own offices in London, and they're, they're not necessarily go to these places or even try and get under the skin of them particularly, or, or try to understand them. So they kind of get kind of written off, I think. And you know, Hull's been one of those cities that since it lost its fishing industry back in the 70s you know it's been very much a place that's suffered from uh from high levels of deprivation and hasn't really been given a fair crack i don't think has it uh has it is there uh, any kind of um is it building back up from the fishing community or yeah i mean i think the great thing we've had in hull over the last 10 years is um it was awarded the title of uk city of culture for 2017 um which which was great because it brought this kind of influx of money to the city to spend on to spend on the arts. Um, and myself and my fellow crime writer in the city, we were very lucky that we got funding to put on a crime writing festival during the year-long festivities. So, you know, we got to bring, I think we brought about 40 crime writers from around the UK, people like Mark Billingham, Martina Cole, and John Connolly, and all kinds of brilliant authors to the city to talk about the work. And, and, and we programmed that festival and it was fantastic. So, you know, but the... The big thing in, in Hull is trying to build a future, I think, through culture and through through um, through leisure, essentially, you know, and, and it's kind of regeneration. So it kind of also throws up as a crime writer all kinds of interesting opportunities because, you know, obviously where you've got money, you've got crime. And, you know, and as a writer, you've got a lot more scope there to kind of uh, dream up scenarios where maybe you can't say it out loud in uh, in the actual real world. So are you saying that you're in crime and that helps you out with your books? Well, <laughs> We, we we watch carefully in the city. We know I know, I know we know what's going on. I think, but um, yeah, you know, just when it has such a huge impulse of money and influence and 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 profile for a change, you know, it was such a you know you, you could kind of see how it changed people and how it changed perceptions and how people were trying to use it as a platform to sort of do their own thing. And it's, it's very interesting as a crime writer to kind of just extrapolate from there and start asking questions about you know maybe what would happen if this was to occur or that was to occur. Um, so yeah, well, you know, it was great and. The chance to program a festival as well was absolutely amazing, and it's something that we've carried forward, and uh, and we kind of keep trying to plug away and keep putting it on. Well, that's interesting. You know, um, when when you're doing these um, crime books, how do you how do you get into your characters? Uh, you know, of course, your main character, but also the extra characters and, and the other people involved. So, in order to write them, you kind of have to be fairly believable right the character mm. has to be real it has to have the correct feelings and the, the right behavior so to speak so what's that work like for you um i think as a writer a lot of it is kind of you feel it in your gut don't you i think you know if it, it comes through rewriting i think you know i sometimes I, I try and plan as best i can before i write a, a novel and you know sometimes it, it's almost a cliche to say that characters take on a life of their own but they but they do um and it, it kind of happens when you're not expecting it and they do it in sort of strange ways it, it's kind of but i think it comes from it comes from convincing yourself first and foremost so it kind of i spend a lot of time thinking you know I, you know the actual time i spend on my laptop is probably very minor compared to the time i spend walking around thinking and and just sort of exploring ideas in my head and how that would work whether the character would would actually do a certain thing or wouldn't do a certain thing so I think it kind of comes from experience and, and, and your gut feeling and, and rewriting rewriting until until I'm convinced as, a, as the author that that character feels real uh, and often it doesn't happen first time for me you know it goes through numerous drafts uh, 
yeah, it, it's tricky isn't it, to try and get under the skin of a character, I think, but every character has to feel... I always try to remember that advice that each character is a star of their, of their own life, aren't they? You know, and although they're a minor character in the book, they've got their own story, and they've got their own backstory, and they've got their own aims and, and dreams and ambitions, and I think that's kind of something you have to drag out with them as you write it. So do your characters have flaws on purpose or that they work through? Yeah, okay. I think that's all kind of part of the arc, isn't it? When, you, when you're writing a story, you know, those characters have to kind of have some kind of journey that they go up on and it has to kind of impact upon them and they have to make... Well, you want them to make decisions, don't you, I think, as, as a writer. You want them to kind of make a decision and that and something that they will act upon and how that will then feed into the story and give it momentum and propel it forward. And that's the important thing, I think, is that kind of giving them giving them enough kind of... Enough kind of um, They've got enough kind of skin in the game, haven't they? I think that's kind of what I'm stretching for. You want them to have kind of consequences in their actions. And that's, you know, that's important. You know, in, in these books and crime fiction, um, I would imagine, okay, so there's, there's going to be entertainment in it. And that's what you want. Mm. But is there, but there's there also what, like a subtext? Are you hoping people take away something else from the book that's maybe, maybe written underneath? Um, I guess to a degree, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of power and, and by money and by, and how they kind of intersect each other, you know, even in a, even in a sort of like a relatively small city like Hull. So I guess I'm kind of always writing about power in some way. You know, maybe it's not, I mean, maybe not doing it deliberately myself. You know, I'm not kind of necessarily planning that out as an idea as such, but I am always kind of thinking about power and inequality and who has power and who has money and who doesn't have it. So, I guess those are the things that kind of drive drive my novels essentially. Is that kind of sense of um, of why why society is is ordered as is ordered as it is, um, and kind of the consequences of that, and who wins and who loses from that. So I guess that's the kind of underlying sort of basis of all my work in a lot of ways. But it's not something I'm, I'm kind of trying to think about too deeply because, as you say, it's about entertainment. Isn't it? You want people to read a book and you want them to be entertained and go away, kind of having enjoyed it and having maybe. Yeah, maybe they've gone away. Maybe they've kind of thought about something in a different way to to how they have previously. But I think first and foremost, you read for entertainment, don't you, for pleasure? Well, I think so. But hopefully, but you know, um, both Michael and I write out um, in nonfiction and true crime. We can't really choose our ending, so to speak, and we yeah. can't really choose our characters' behavior. I mean, we, I guess we could put some some of our own feelings in on the characters involved but it's not like you you get to create that character create the situation and decide how it's going to end yeah that's true it is isn't it and i think you know that the ending has to be satisfactory doesn't it in that sense you know and I, I kind of like i like loose endings as well I like, I like those kind of like loose threads where maybe you kind of you have you have closed the story off in the in the, in the sense of a big over arc the, the arc of the story and the, and the kind of like the overall solving of the main mystery within it but within there there'll be like threads that still dangle uh, you know, and a little bit of wriggle room for people you know, and you know I think as readers we like to do a bit of work as well don't we we like to kind of we like to think about what we're reading and we like to make our own minds up about the morality maybe behind a decision within a story so yeah I think there's you know there's, there's a lot of grey areas within uh, that you can explore as a fiction writer it doesn't have to just be black or white you don't have to necessarily solve the mystery in the novel but i think there is there's a balance there isn't there you know it has to be kind of satisfactory for the reader but also i think you can kind of play a little bit with it as well and be maybe it's kind of leave it with some open questions which i guess 
is a bit tricky for you guys. Like you say, as true crime writers, it's more about, I guess, the resolution, isn't it? Yeah, I lie a lot, so uh, people <laughs> don't know that it's not the truth. So that's how you work it, Nick. <laughs> I will know that down. That's how <laughs> Well, there you have it. Now you know. <laughs> no, I think that, um, yeah, and I think there's a difference in the sense of, uh, yeah, you can't really choose what the the characters have already, that what they've done or are going to do in the book. It's kind of already there. So it's it's more about being able to find out the truth, except for in Michael's case, and, and <laughs> pass that on to people so they try to understand, I guess. That's kind of how it is. Um, do, do you find a difference in UK mysteries and crime fiction as compared to American crime fictions? Um, no, I don't, not necessarily. No, I mean, I, I do read a lot of American um, crime fiction, you know, as much as I read kind of the, the British stuff. But, um, you know, I, th- I think it's kind of the themes and the, and the, and the, uh, the aims of it are probably universal. You know, it's, it's about the characters, isn't it, and their kind of journeys and the stories and, and places. So I'm, I'm looking, I guess I'm looking for the same thing regardless of what, where the book is that I'm reading is set. Um, so, yeah, I don't necessarily see any great difference in, in that sense. Really. Not, not fundamentally. I mean, like, you know, obviously you kind of get into the stuff that you are. Maybe if I'm reading a, a cop novel set in America, then, you know, the, the law procedure is vastly different to what it is in a, in a UK set novel or... Or the private investigator, obviously, subgenre is kind of a good one for that, because it's the kind of operating in a very different way. But um, I think fundamentally, crime novels are the same wherever you pick them up. You know, it's about the character and it's about the setting and it's about it's about themes that you know whether you write about Holland, you write about New York, it's about power and about money and about revenge and about justice and those kind of themes cut across all or should cut across all the crime novels, I think. I always find the the British ones a little bit more. Um, I, I, I hate I, the only word that comes to me is intelligent, <laughs> but I don't want to. I don't want to use that. I just mean it's a little bit more. Um, it's it's more of an investigation on people's behavior, mm-hmm. in a sense, than just that they did it. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe it depends on the books, doesn't it? Because you know, I'm kind of thinking of something like the Michael Connolly books, and I kind of see them as being very much the other side of the coin to Ian Rankin's Rebus novels. Um, you know, and I would certainly say those are very satisfying mysteries and investigations in the way that a Rebus novel is. You know, Bosch and, and Rebus are kind of almost like long-lost brothers, aren't they, really? Um, so I guess, you know, it just, it just depends on what you're reading, I think, doesn't it, in that kind of subgenre. But, yeah, I mean, I guess the kind of the... the particularly when you talk about thrillers, and obviously the US kind of has kind of has the edge on that, don't they? Because obviously you have to like to reach you running around with guns and, and whatnot, and it's kind of a very different scenario. You couldn't, you couldn't set those type of novels in England, could you? I don't think. It, it just wouldn't kind of work. Well, uh, yeah, you, you know, you're not running around with guns. Well, as not, not, always, not always, at least, at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, some subgenres work better than others, don't they, I think, in, in certain countries. Um I guess, um, but no, I, I think you know there's plenty, there's plenty to kind of like in, in in both. I think, and you can kind of find it if you want to. I think as a reader. Yeah, and you, you and during your, I guess some of your writers, you've 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 had Lee Child, you know, and that's um, that's he's he's quite a writer with Reacher, right? Oh yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean I've had, I've, uh, I've had the pleasure of interviewing Lee at the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival, you know, and he's he's a massive supporter of crime writing and. and 
in, in all its kind of shades and colours, you know, and, and supports writers amazingly well. Um, yeah, um, but those those novels are kind of very, they could only be second in America, I think. Um, yeah. No, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't, that wouldn't work in Yeah, there was a regional novel set in the UK, wasn't it? At least partially set in the UK. I can't, I can't remember which one it was now, but it wasn't, I don't think it really worked particularly, not for me as a reader. Um, you know, you want reacher in those kind of small Midwest towns, don't you, where he's kind of isolated from from everywhere else, and uh, we uh, he gets involved in all sorts of mysterious mysterious trouble, like on the on the. I guess you guys have maybe seen the Amazon series that's just been on as well. Yeah, yeah, I just saw yeah. it. It's, it's pretty good, but yeah, you couldn't work that in any other country, really. I mean, yeah. you know that that setting and the behavior um, is is something that would be very hard to pull off in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, um, people maybe know Simon Koenig, you know, he's a brilliant thriller writer and he's kind of UK thrillers have that kind of very much up against the clock feel against them and, you know, the very fast pace and there's people kind of screeching around the country and uh, they're around the countryside and, and with guns and with uh, kidnapping people and there's all sorts of stuff going on and they're probably as near as I think we get to that kind of reach a template, really. Um, but yeah, it, it is very rare that I think you pick up a UK thriller that works like a Lee Child book or maybe a Linwood Barclay book or, um, that, you know, those type of thriller writers. Well, interesting that, uh, like from, you know, across the Atlantic, we think of London, but mm. Hull is, is so much different. Do you purposely try to kind of separate that or try to get the kind of the experience, what you would get in Hull? Yeah, I mean, I think so. You know, the UK, I mean, obviously it's a, it's a small country, isn't it? But every kind of, every area has its own character, you know, and I think, um, yeah, you, you go to Edinburgh with, with Ian Rankin, and that's kind of very much a, a university city, and it's, it's a red brick city, and it's kind of very different to what Hull's like, uh, you know. And then you kind of go across to somewhere like Liverpool, and again, that's very different. Uh, and London, obviously, is, is a is a global city, isn't it? Um, essentially, you know, it's kind of it's a melting right. pot of, of people and, and of cultures, where other maybe cities like Hull, which are kind of um, two hundred miles away, aren't aren't just developed in that way. Um, so, yeah, I think it's about trying to get the character of a place onto the page, and that's kind of what I want to do with Hull. But, yeah, I think you have to be careful that every every place has its own kind of character and flavor, and that's kind of important, I think, as a writer to, to draw that out, really. It's interesting how you have the, uh, you know, the private investigator, and you said kind of like in America, and we start with actually Sherlock Holmes with the private investigator, yeah. then it goes to America. Now now you're back in Hull. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think, yeah. I just kind of wanted to do that because you don't tend to see an awful lot of private investigators and all set in the UK. I mean, I don't kind of understand why, really, because, you, you know, you're writing fiction, so you can kind of play a little bit loose and fast with how all the kind of work that a private investigator actually does in the UK, because generally speaking, it's, it's serving legal papers, it's, it's surveillance, it's not particularly exciting work, but why shouldn't they be kind of getting involved in all kinds of mischief and uh, getting under the skin of the police a little bit more? So it just made sense to me to, to, to try it. Um, and put it in a contemporary city, and you know, and I, I like doing that. It's kind of, I think, you know, if you're writing a police novel, then obviously you've got the procedure to deal with, and you've got kind of got this place a, a police officer can't necessarily do certain things, or a private investigator answers to nobody. And I, I like that as a writer that I can take him anywhere and just see what happens with him. You know, you can kind of, you can kind of face the consequences of his actions in a way that a police officer maybe wouldn't in a novel. I think. Now, now your books, each one of them, um, they will stand alone. Like someone doesn't have to go through all four books. No, no, no. They're, they're stand alone. I think kind of that's as a writer, that's the end, isn't it? You want a series work which rewards readers who kind of go all the way through them. But 
you want them to stand and learn as well at the same time. And, um, you know, very much Sound of the Sinners, which is it's kind of the fourth book, but it's the start of a new cycle, really. So it's a good jumping in point, I think, because Joe's been away from the city for five years. He's been out working in Holland. Um, he's come back because his old partner has been has died in a mysterious hit and run incident just outside of the city. So he's kind of compelled to come back and look into this. Um, so it's kind of like a reset, really, of the characters, I think. Um, so, so you know, I think Sound of the Sinners is a really good point to jump in as a, as a reader. And that was certainly the intention, yeah. How do you feel your characters? Is that like... Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Do you, do you like, hear them as people? Do you hear voices? Do you see them visually? Um, how is it for you? Yeah, I don't see them. I mean, that's kind of, I've never seen Joe Garrity's face. You know, I know a lot of writers kind of say, don't they, you know, in the dream world, I would cast this actor as, uh, as my lead protagonist. But I've never seen Joe Garrity's face. All I know about him really is that he's, he's a small man because he used to play rugby league, which is um, kind of a, a defining sport in the region, in the city. And he played, he was a scrum half in the game. So that's kind of generally people were, kind of underneath five foot ten effectively so I know he's a small man I know he's about 40 but I can't see his face I've never been able to see his face it's more about it's more about the dialogue I kind of like kind of play in my head essentially um you know I kind of like to kind of mumble the scenes to myself as I'm walking around which probably isn't great when you're walking around the streets is it but um (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of how I pick you know that's how I kind of pick it up it's through it's through the it's through the dialogue really never never through the visuals which is, um, yeah, I just, I just, I just, I've never seen him and I, I don't think I want to see him as well. 
<laughs> yeah, so just look for Nick walking around the streets yeah, there and no. mumbling to himself and kind of yeah. and, and kind of acting out these action scenes. Yeah, I mean, I've, always, I've been I'm a huge fan of Elmore Leonard, and I think you know if you're a fan of Elmore Leonard, you're a fan of dialogue, aren't you? Basically, so I think that's kind of how I kind of find the character. You know, it's through it's through the dialogue really more than the actual visual stuff. It's more that's how I kind of that's how I kind of get into. It, I think. And and the the other characters, the characters he interacts with, um, are they just people you've come across in your life, or you've seen? Not, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess it's kind of drawn on everything you kind of drawn on your own experience, aren't you? So I guess Don's relation, his relationship with Don, which is kind of very much a, he's very much a father figure to Joe. You know, he's kind of a man who's an ex-detective. He's kind of he's been there and done it. So I guess there's an element there of kind of. I'm thinking about my own relationship with my father. Um, so, yeah, you're always drawing on your own kind of, your own history, I think, your own kind of, your own knowledge and your own kind of understanding of what of what, what the world is to you. Um, but, yeah, I just generally, I think characters generally, they tend to be kind of more like composites of people I've maybe met as I've been kind of moving around and, and just, just living, really, you know, whether it's through work or through, through other things. You know, you kind of always pick up interesting little traits that other people have don't you or maybe things that they say and you kind of maybe incorporate that into a character and it becomes kind of a you know you maybe you have to discard a little bit as a writer because you obviously don't want people kind of pointing the finger and saying that's me so um yeah yeah you know i think just kind of just living really is kind of how you kind of create these characters is everything just goes into a real melting pot and comes back out again in, in its own kind of way well i'm sure you kill off people you don't like yeah. <laughs> it's always tempting, isn't it? It's very yeah. tempting to do that. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm in the process of moving house at the moment, so maybe my next time I might kill off, a, I don't know, a mortgage advisor or a solicitor or something like that, possibly. So, <laughs> you know, we will see. Yeah, it, it is. It, I, I, do, I like I like that about writing. You know, that that being able to get things out on the page. You know, when maybe you know there are things you don't like about the world or about a specific situation or a specific person, but you can always kind of get it on the page and, and kind of cleanse yourself of it, I think, you know, whether it's whether it's on the national stage, whether there's a, whether there's a politician I don't like, you know, I can maybe incorporate it into a novel and I can kind of work from my feelings and kind of get all out of me and onto the page, onto that character. Or you say maybe it's more personal, where it's something, you know, that uh, that's happening in my own kind of life, maybe that I want to kind of think about and explore. And writing is a great way of doing that, I think. It's kind of like cheap therapy, isn't it, I think, for us writers. Do you have a favorite antagonist? Um, no, I don't really. With them being kind of mysteries, I don't think it tends to be a separate one in each book. So there isn't one that kind of recurs. I don't think in that sense. So, uh, yeah, but I, I kind of think that I would. I like. I like organ. I like discussing organized crime in the books. Just these kind of like small time criminals who kind of wield an awful lot of power in a city. Um, so you know, I think I should try and create one who can kind of stay the course a bit longer across those books and I can kind of have them kind of ups and downs between him and, and my protagonist. So, yeah, you know, an, an antagonist on really well is great, isn't it? They're always great fun to read and I, and I suspect they're great fun to write as well. What kind of influences do you have? Um, in terms of writers, um, I think I always kind of go back to people like Ian Rankin, you know, that, that sense of place he has when he writes about Edinburgh. You know, that, that was kind of really... Uh, inspirational to me when I started to write and you know, I kind of knew I wanted to write about Hull and what Ian was doing with Edinburgh was very much the template for that I think it was kind of like the the gold standard for writing about a city and how it changes and how and how power kind of quietly kind of influences what's going on within it um, and as I mentioned Elmore Leonard as well you know Elmore Leonard and his dialogue I think is just untouchable you know so you, you kind of 
you can't not like Amal Lennon's dialogue, can you? You can just read pages of his characters just talking to each other about anything in a car. Um, so, you know, and that, so that's, that love of dialogue is something that's kind of come to our hope um, strongly in the novels. So, yeah, those are, the, those are the main two, really. But I am a big reader of crime fiction generally. So, you know, I kind of love, I love things from one end of the scale, like, like the Reacher novels through to um, sort of psychological mysteries. And um, I've kind of developed a bit of a thing for spy novels of late, which is kind of, I think that's been a lockdown thing for me. Um, I never read Le Carre until fairly recently, and I've kind of worked my way through those slowly, but but surely. So, yeah, you know, I think it kind of comes from everywhere, doesn't it, as a writer? You kind of take it all and then you kind of mix it all up and it comes out, hopefully, in your own voice at the end. Um, so that's kind of how it works for me. But I think probably away from writing, music is a, is a huge thing for me. And um, when I was younger, when I was kind of in my teenage years and my 20s, I used to share a, a flat with a friend who was in a band. Um, and they'd kind of released their own record, they booked their own tours, they were kind of like a completely independent unit. And that, just that sense of people saying, right, we're going to do this, and this is how we're going to do it, was really kind of inspiring because, you know, when I was growing up in, in Hull in the 80s, it wasn't particularly the type of city where you were encouraged to do artistic things. You know, they, you know, it was just kind of a mystery. It was something that kind of didn't exist in my type of life or my family's life at that point. So meeting the right people, doing the right things at the right time was incredibly inspirational to me and kind of what gave me I think it gave me permission to then start writing really you know that sense of watching other people doing what they wanted to maybe kind of empowered me to go out and do what I wanted to do which was which was write crime novels. Would, would your readers um, be surprised by anything you you listen to or do you know like uh, you know you listen to maybe something or or read something and they'd know. be like wow. I don't know really um I don't know. I don't know. I guess. I mean, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of. I'm a massive football fan. I always played football when I was younger. You know, or maybe sort of soccer to more to more than listeners, I guess. Uh, yeah. And that type of thing. You know, people don't tend to sort of think you can be kind of into the arts and into sport, do they? They simply, you know, there seems to be a bit of a kind of a those things don't necessarily cross over a lot of the time. You know, but that's kind of part of of who I am and what I've always done. What I've always enjoyed. So I guess that's kind of. I don't know. You get the sense. Maybe maybe I'm digging into some sort of class thing there. Certainly in England, where you know, you're into the arts, but you're into sports, and one thing is high culture, and one thing is low culture. But um, I've always loved the, I've always loved both things, reading and and sports. So yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's something that people might find a little bit interesting. Um, I thought maybe you're practicing ballet or something. That would be good, wouldn't it? If I could do that. I'm trying to. No, I mean, generally, if I'm <laughs> writing, I'm reading, uh, or I'm I'm trying to kick a football around still, even though I'm probably too old to be doing that. Really. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, so yeah, beyond that, I think yeah, writing just becomes such an, uh, an all-consuming passion, doesn't it? You know, I think for all of us who write and read, it becomes such a great, a great, a great part of our lives that there's not time to do an awful lot else beyond that. I think, but I suspect it probably would be quite healthy to do something else like that. But I wish I could turn my brain off and be able to just, you know, like you say, collect stamps or uh, do some ballet or whatever it might be. I, yeah. I just can't. Do That's it. What Mike, Michael does that. Michael, Michael, Michael reads Jack the Ripper, and he wears a little ballerina outfit. And- <laughs> Well, I take pictures of it, and then I put it in my uh, Halloween decorations and stuff. You know. That's the only fun's content. <laughs> That's how he fools people, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, well, well, what's your writing structure then? Like, how do you find yourself writing? Do you, do you Can you just schedule time that you have where there's nobody around where you're living and yeah. it's quiet or do you, can do you have to be in a certain mood to do it like where where does it go for you 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that I do. I kind of do a combination of things. Um, I, I work part time in a regular job, uh, and kind of the last five years, the most important thing has been uh, getting my daughter to school and back every day. Um, so that's kind of that's become my thing. So the school day, generally speaking, when I'm not working in other areas, is my writing time. So I quite like the fact that I have between kind of nine o'clock in the morning to about two o'clock in the afternoon to write. Um, you know, and that's that's kind of like set time. So usually I spend a couple of hours messing around too much on Twitter and, and Facebook, and then you know the clock will be ticking slowly around to school's finishing. So then it'll be a panic station, and then I'll start writing. Um, but I, I like having that structure. You know, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've got a structure I can work with that kind of gets me writing. Um, and like I said, I spend a lot of time kind of walking and thinking. So I'll, I'll generally take my daughter to school and I'll be thinking about what I'm going to write as I walk back. And then I'm kind of ready to hit the laptop, hopefully. Um, so, yeah, but like everybody, really I'm kind of doing it around other things, you know. So it's, it's kind of work, it's other commitments. I'm maybe grabbing an hour a night to do it. I'm maybe grabbing a bit of time on the weekend. It depends on what the deadlines are, I think, as much as anything. But, um, mm. yeah, you know, I, I kind of I feel quite lucky that I've got the chance to write at least part time at the moment, which is, which is good. So I just try and maximize that as best I can, really. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of all you can do there. You ever going to write other types of books? Do you think you'll venture into something different, comedy? Or... Yeah. No, I don't think so, to be honest. I just kind of, I say I'm such a fan of crime fiction as, as a genre and as a reader that it's the only thing I really want to write, really. I know I've kind of not got the edge to write in other genres. Um, I guess if I was to do something else, it would probably be nonfiction. You know, I'd, I'd maybe like to write a book kind of about sport or maybe about music in some way. I don't know what that would be necessarily, but I would like to try a non-fiction book at some point. But I think at the moment, I'm just kind of, my, my aim is just to keep writing, hopefully writing better and better crime novels, you know, and I just want to try and push that as far as I can, really. So, yeah, you know, I've not got that kind of itch to write to write other things particularly. That. I know some writers enjoy that, really, but for me, I just want to write crime novels and try and improve the craft doing that, really. It's historically in Hull, has there been any kind of like serial killings that you could maybe do some non-fiction from Hull or? Uh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. The, 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 there is there is kind of interesting stuff in the Victorian era that can be kind of written about. Um, yeah, you know, the, there's always interesting stories to tell, isn't there? It's just trying to find that that fresh angle on them. I think into that kind of new take on them that gives us a bit of insight um, through through sort of new eyes, effectively. But yeah, it's, it's not something I'm particularly looking for, and I think that's the difference. You know, I'm always kind of thinking about plots and about ideas, but I'm not. I'm, I'm maybe I'm deliberately trying not to look at things like uh, like real life murders and real life crime because I don't want to get that itch to write it maybe I just want to write fiction so you know maybe I'm kind of subconsciously turning the tap off there when I read about it I'm not digging too deep into it I don't think but yeah there's lots of opportunities I suspect even even in a small city like Hull there'll be stories there that I'm sure sounds like you still though have to do research on let's say how private yeah. investigators work and the police force how they relate to each other yeah, I mean, to a degree. I mean, I, I like I like writing a private investigator partly because you don't have to do as much research and as much procedural elements to it as a police character. So that that was a big attraction to me, maybe because I just don't like doing that stuff. Um, so yeah, I think that would be that would probably be quite a drawback writing nonfiction. I really would have to kind of learn how to research properly and, and and methodically and in a way that was kind of time efficient. So yeah, you know, it's a very different skill set, I think, and it's not one that I've kind of particularly wanted to get into just yet. Right. You you also the the new home of of Joe is um, Amsterdam. Do you have a particular reason for using Amsterdam? 
Yeah, it's because um, Hull is connected by ferry across to Holland. Um, you can jump on a ferry in Hull about this time of the night, about 7 o'clock p.m., uh, and you wake up in Rotterdam the next morning at sort of 6 o'clock, and then you're running an hour away from Amsterdam. So there's always been a connection between between Hull and Holland. Um, and, you, and you kind of see it in the, the architecture of Hull as well. You know, there's, there's kind of that very much that Dutch influence upon it. Um, so, yeah, there's always been that connection there, and it just kind of, you know, it just, it just felt kind of logical that like if Joe was to go somewhere, then that's somewhere that's, it's a good distance away, but it's not too far at the same time. You know, there's always that connection. You're only a ferry ride away between the two places. So, yeah, you know, and, and plus I like Amsterdam. I love, I love going there as well. So it was kind of fun to write something, or at least, at least, trying, to, at least trying to imagine and picture living in that city and how that would then influence into the novel. So, yeah, you know, it just kind of felt once I decided it wasn't in Hull anymore, I felt it had to go abroad somewhere, and Holland and Amsterdam just felt like like the obvious choice for me, really. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. You know, he's having a good time with the pot. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it's one of the places where, you know, you live in, when you visit Amsterdam at different stages of your life, I think, if you live in Holland, you kind of go as a teenager with your friends, you know, because, and, and you kind of enjoy some of the more uh, nefarious opportunities that Amsterdam offers you. Then you kind of go back with a partner and you kind of see how beautiful it is as a city with the canals and the art galleries. And then you kind of go back with your children and you kind of see it through fresh eyes again. So it's kind of a, you know, it's very much a city that offers lots of different things to different people. So you know, I think it'd be a great setting for a crime novel as well. So maybe, maybe when I do start writing about other places other than, other than Hull, Amsterdam might be, a, it might be a good choice, I think. Hmm. Certainly be fun to go investigate. <laughs> yeah. And, and tax deductible as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, do you, speaking of people, do you like uh, people, or do you like? And I mean this. Um, do you like having the world the way it is now, like the social media and, and all of that? And do you like people to interact, or do you do you get yeah, into I all do. that? I, yeah. I do. Yeah, I, I do. I think I think I do. I, I like. I love Twitter actually, which you know not many people seem to do, do they? But I really like that. You know, being able to connect with people all around the world. You know, whether it's through books or whether it's through sports or whatever it is. I just think. It's such a great opportunity, you know. I mean, obviously, it is and can be a cesspit, can't it? You know, you know, if you if you kind of look in the wrong places, or you let yourself kind of get drawn down rabbit holes of, of politics and, and things like that. But um, I think on the whole, it's such a positive thing, you know. And it's been such a positive thing on my life as well, you know. And then really has enriched it having some different people from all around the globe, being able to kind of interact with them and read what read their stories and read what's happening in their places. And yeah, I think I think it's great. I really I, I like it too much. I think to be honest. You know, I could probably spend more time writing on this than tweeting, I think, would probably be, uh, would be wise advice to myself. Hmm. So do you follow reviews or does that matter? Uh, I, I, I think any writer who says they don't look at them probably lies, don't they? You can't help but look at them. But I think, you know, you, you kind of have to, you have to try and remain balanced, don't you? you know, if somebody gives you a five-star review and says you're the best writer in the world, then you shouldn't believe it. And if somebody gives you a one-star review and says you're the worst writer in the world, you shouldn't believe it either. You kind of just got to, try and just let it wash over you, I think, to a degree. You know, there's there's often kind of things you can pick out of them that are useful, but, um, yeah, I, I try not to get too bogged down in reviews because, you know, you don't need to just give yourself a kicking, I think, as a writer, do you? You know, if you're, if you're a writer who's kind of quite pleased with what you're doing, then I'd be a little bit worried, I think, really. You know, I think writers should be full of self-doubt about what they're doing and kind of questioning themselves as to whether what they're writing is the best they can produce or whether, it can, you know, whether they're doing it right, Um so yeah, you know, I think you know, it's, it's just it's, a, it's probably something you don't need to hear. I think these reviews and criticism or praise, really, you just got to kind of focus in on giving the best way that you can and doing the best way that you can. And that's kind of 
that's what counts ultimately, I think, you know, being able to kind of answer to yourself and be satisfied that you're giving it the best shot that you can and you're producing the best way you can at that point in time. Well, hopefully I'll become like you, because right now I, I hunt down and kill the people that... <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's what I'm dealing with it, with it, of course, isn't it? Yeah. It does, it does tend to carry quite stiff jail penalties, I think, doesn't it? So it's just tricky. <laughs> Only if you get caught. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you've got to be stuff like that. Well, yeah. I, I have a, a, a pseudonym. I call myself... Nick Montrell and I go out looking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> I'm not looking to America anymore or Canada. Or anything. Yeah. I'm not looking to America anymore. Yeah. yeah, look out. They're, they'll be after you. You're on the no-fly list. My, my passport's going to ping off, isn't it, when I, when I go to America? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll be like Nick Reacher. They'll be all over you with the gun. Be, Stop. Please. Yeah. Down on the floor. Uh, I'm going to have a toothbrush. Yeah. Um, so now let's see. Now, are you running a website you want people to come visit you on, or do you, where where do you want them to follow you on social media? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the best thing I have a website which is nickcontrol.co.uk, uh, and I'm also on Twitter at that handle at nickcontrol. Um, and Twitter's all, I think Twitter's the best way. You know, I'm always on Twitter, uh, and I'm always interested in kind of what's going on. So yeah, Twitter Twitter's the best way. And also um, check out our crime festival Home Wire as well, which is. Um, we're currently kind of applying for more funding to put it on again, but um, we're always doing stuff online as well. So, you know, I think that's been kind of the great one of the pandemic for, for writers is that chance to do things online and how it's become kind of part of the part of the landscape, I think, hasn't it, really? So, um, you know, we're kind of embracing that as much as we can as a festival and, and interviewing online and doing events online as well as in our home city. So, yeah, look us up on Twitter, home on, on Twitter as well. Hmm. Sports-based fiction. Yes. <laughs> that, that, is, that does tempt me. It does tempt me. Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. You know, it, it, sometimes it doesn't necessarily mesh with crime, does it? Particularly well on the page, I don't think. Um, but yeah, sport based fiction. I, you know, David Peace, who wrote, um, he wrote the, um, the Damned United about Brian Clough, a great British football man in the seventies, is an incredible. It's a noir novel, essentially. You know, it's kind of, you're inside the head of Brian Cliff, who's this conflicted man between kind of what he, you know, he's kind of driven to be the best he can be. And he's kind of got this, this antagonist who was another manager, Don Revy, who's got the job he wants, you know, and it's just kind of a, it's complete. It's a novel being conflicted and about demons and about how they kind of drive you. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a noir novel, but it's just, but it's kind of marketed as a sports novel. So it can be done, but, um, yeah, I, it's something I do think about. And I kind of, I would like to get that idea that lets me kind of write a sports crime novel. But um, you've also got to have an eye on the commercial aspect as well. I'm not sure people necessarily would want that particularly. Mm. And do, do you always write your book with um, kind of like the characters that always Joe, that is the um, point of view in your book, first person? Yeah, it, it is in these novels. It's, it's a first person uh, Novel, so and you know, with with the occasional kind of filtering of maybe the, another point of view, or possibly like using things like newspaper reports or um, just kind of things like that, that I can just sort of drop into break up a little bit. But um, yeah, the Joe Garrett novels are, are first person novels, but the novel I've just completed, which is a a new character, I mean, it's a young female podcaster that's written in the third person because I wanted specifically to bring in more than one viewpoint of the novel and make it a little bit more kind of thrillerish, I suppose. You know, where you can kind of you can dip in and out of characters and, and situations and just kind of get get a little bit more page turning in that sense, I think. So, yeah, you know, I, I like the first person as a, as a writer. I think it's, I kind of like that medium, but it's important, I think, to mix it up isn't it, and try different things and uh, keep yourself on your toes, really. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thought. Do you, 
uh, do you find that there would would you have a problem writing yourself in first play, first person as a female character lead character? Yeah, I mean, well, I did I did worry about that for a long time when I was writing the Garrity novel. I kept thinking, can I write a female character? Um, and for this novel I've written, it it's third person. I just kind of you kind of just have to tell yourself to get over yourself. I think, don't you, to a degree? You know, it's not it's not that different, really. You know, you kind of the, 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 obviously. Um, this female character is a lot younger than Joe Garrity, so you know she thinks differently and she likes different things and she has different ambitions and different hopes. But essentially, I think you're just writing people, aren't you? You're writing about conflict and you're writing about kind of what drives them as a person. So I, I've kind of tried not to get too deep into thinking whether it's male or female in that sense. It's about what that character wants and what they do, I think, more than anything. Um, but yeah, maybe writing it actually in first person would be a little bit of a scarier prospect, possibly. But the great thing as a writer is you can just try, you don't have to show anybody, um, you know, you, you can just experiment and see how it feels and, you know, I think, you know, when you go, when you get something right or when you get it wrong um, and, you know, so, so maybe that would be something to try out at some point, but um, yeah. maybe not quite at no. the moment. Yeah, you just borrow Michael's uh, ballet uniform. Out yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> that's, that's what he does. He gets in the minds <laughs> of the victims of Jack and... <laughs> Well, one of the things is, although I, I, you know, I have a couple of fiction novels, the, uh, I got yelled at by my editor because I was head hopping too much. Mm. So different points of view and I'd go around and, and then you, she said that, uh, I was getting the reader exhausted. So I had to uh, kind of do less of that. But, yeah, so I just keep on, you know, just wear my little skirt and we're on, we're all set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the novel I've got, there's, there's mainly two perspectives, you know, and I think, Possibly three perspectives is probably about the maximum I want to go to in terms of um, allowing people into other characters' heads, you know, because like you say, when you get too many, it becomes convoluted, doesn't take the story, maybe repeats on itself a little bit too much because there's too many characters and they're not driving a plot forward enough. So, yeah, I think that's, that's an important point, but it, it comes down to how you handle it as a writer, I think, doesn't it? And uh, your yeah. confidence in doing that, I think. Yeah, well, I'm definitely a non-fiction guy, so my editor tried to change me into a fiction person. It was fun as heck, but uh, I, I am such a research-based kind of person, and then like uh, I like so when Al and I talk about that stuff, it just it connects much better. But yeah. it, it, I'm so curious about how fiction writers are because it's a different world. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. You're the master of your own universe, aren't you? I guess in a way that you're not possibly so. But then maybe you have to, sometimes you get too many possibilities as well. You know, you kind of think, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? And it's sometimes difficult to pick the right path through it all. And that's kind of, again, that's going back to listening to your gut, I think. You know, I, I kind of like to think that I can kind of sniff myself when I'm about to go off track maybe a bit too much uh, and kind of know when to rein myself back in. So I'm staying on the focus and I'm keeping on the path that will get me through the novel. But, um, yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely a lot. There's a, there's, you've, literally, you've got, you've got, a million things you could choose on, haven't you, as a, as, a, as a fiction writer, and that's sometimes tough to sort of just focus in on what it should be. And then maybe that's where you need the help of an editor, I think. Mm. So um, stressful situations. How was COVID for you in the writing arena? Did it sort of affect your writing? Yeah, well, it didn't affect my writing as such. I found the writing to be really kind of, um, to be such a useful thing. You know, it was kind of an outlet, really, um, because... I guess I've gone from having the house to myself because my daughter's at school and my wife's a teacher, so she was obviously out teaching. But then when COVID hit, um, they were both in the house as well as me. So it kind of became a bit of a different scenario in that sense. I was kind of sharing space that I wasn't doing before. Um, but being able to just lose myself a few hours in a story and just writing was, was brilliant. 
you know, and I think you know that was such a boost on my own mental health in that time, really. Um, but I, what I found tough was was reading. You know, I, I was kind of I, I couldn't read contemporary crime fiction at the start of lockdown. I just found it too just too upsetting to read about characters walking into pubs for a drink or a bar or something, or doing you know just doing stuff that we took, we was taking for granted up until that point. And I kind of dug deeper into historical crime fiction and, and sort of new worlds, things that took, take me out of where I was. Um, but yeah, you know, I found the actual writing to be really kind of, I was really thankful that I had the writing to focus on during COVID, uh, particularly that first kind of, that first spell in, in the UK of lockdown. Um, that first sort of six to nine months, it was kind of, it was really, I felt like a gift really, to be honest. And um, I guess the downside was when, when Sound of the Sinners was published, it was during during the pandemic, so it made getting out to promote it an awful lot harder. And you know, like most writers, it went to to the online arena and, and doing things there, which, which again, I think you know, like I said, it's become it's become a win, I think, for writers, isn't it? This online world, you know, we've now got the chance to connect through our laptops and through Zoom with with writers and, and readers and uh, places that we wouldn't necessarily been able to go to. So, you know, it's kind of definitely been kind of pros and cons, I think. But um, you know, I'm just pleased I kind of got through it unscathed and. Um, was able to kind of focus on the writing and that was kind of a, a really sort of positive thing for me really in the last couple of years. Mm, yeah. 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 We all know. Um, yeah. Well, it's been a great hour. So now the book we're talking about is sound of the sinners, Joe's oh, Garotti book four and the author is Nick Quantrell. Thank you for being on the show. No, thank you both. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Great speaking with you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, 
hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.